In the Mudroom Today with Suzanne Stabile. If you find yourself betwixt in between, when you're not where you were and not where you're going, then that's the moment when you can say, oh, oh yeah, faith and control cannot peacefully coexist. That means, though, if, if we try to put the two together, then we lack peace. And ultimately, I would rather have peace than live in the illusion that I'm in control. Welcome to the Mudroom. It might be a mess, but that's what it's there for. Whatever junk you're carrying with you, you can leave it here. However much of a mess you are today, the mudroom is here for you. A place to drop all the other cells we are constantly putting on and taking off. A place to catch your breath as your soul catches up with you. We don't have to be anything in the mudroom except our messy, marvelous mud cake selves. So have a seat, take a deep breath, and enter in with us. This is episode two, The Gifts of Living in Liminal Space with Enneagram Master Teacher, Suzanne Stabile. After days, weeks, or months of digging, maybe we thought we'd unearthed it all. The hidden gifts buried deep within the Enneagram. But in reality, we've only scratched the surface. Author, speaker, and Enneagram master teacher, Suzanne Stabile, meets us in the mudroom today with over 30 years of Enneagram work. She's taught thousands at conferences through her Enneagram Journey podcast and her books, The Path Between Us and bestseller co-authored with Ian Morgan Crone, The Road Back to You, and her new book, The Journey Towards Wholeness, Enneagram Wisdom for Stress, Balance, and Transformation which is a game changer for those of us who decide to dig deeper. And if that wasn't enough, Suzanne is also the co-founder with her husband, the Reverend Joseph Stabile of Life in the Trinity Ministry, a non-denominational organization committed to the spiritual growth and formation of adults. The MICA Center is home base for their ministries located where they live in Dallas, Texas. I'm your host, Nicole Wu. I'm a writer and editor at the Mudroom blog, and I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Tammy Perlmutter, founder and curator of The Mudroom. This is part one of a two-part conversation with Suzanne, where we work to unearth gifts that you've got to dig deep for. We're talking about Enneagram wisdom, specifically in this episode, the grace it gives us for ourselves and all of our relationships, hope for living in liminal spaces. We talk about living in pandemic life and the counterintuitive peace that comes from realizing that we're not in control. And if, by chance, the Enneagram is a brand new word in your vocabulary, you're right where you should be. Suzanne Stabile is the place where you need to start. You'll find more links and resources in our show notes, including places to go to get your feet wet. So join us now here in the mudroom for a conversation with Enneagram godmother Suzanne Stabile. We're glad you're here. Suzanne Stabile, welcome to the mudroom. We're so grateful that you could join us today in the midst of the mess. And I know that I can speak for both Tammy and myself and all of our readership and audience just to say that we're grateful to you for making our lives deeper and richer and better. Thank you. I I don't know of a higher compliment than that I have by doing what I think God called me to do, I helped other people do what's theirs to do. Amen. 
Suzanne, many of our listeners are familiar with the Enneagram and have done some Enneagram work, but perhaps they're meeting you here for the first time. So just by way of introduction, we want to ask you about your own personal Enneagram journey. How do you think your life would look without the Enneagram work that you've done personally? What do you think would be different? You know, when you're 35 and somebody says, what do you think your life would look like if you hadn't known this or 45 or 55 or 65? I'm 71 and I've known the Enneagram for almost 31 years. And it's very difficult. You know how I say to people a lot when I'm teaching, you will never be able to think in non-Enneagram ways again. You won't apply everything to the Enneagram or the Enneagram to everything, but you you can't unknow the Enneagram. And I happen to have had the blessing of being taught the Enneagram by Father Richard Rohr, and he was my husband's and my spiritual director for a long time. And he encouraged me to study for five years before I talked about it. And I did that. Yeah, I don't have any idea why. I guess grace, because I'm certainly don't have the personality to have done that. And I think that set the stage for me to do the teaching that I do, which is primarily the Enneagram and. My Enneagram work is all Enneagram applied to parts of life that are meaningful and important. And Joe and I learned it so early in our marriage that I think I think it kept us from regrettable words and regrettable behavior. And I also think that it gave us language to talk about hard things that it would have been more difficult to talk about if we didn't have the Enneagram as the backdrop for that. You know, you can say things using the Enneagram that you just can't say, using somebody's name. I don't know if you know our story. Joe's a former Catholic priest. Uh, he left the priesthood when we married. I was divorced with three children. He adopted my three. We uh, had a fourth. All our children went away to school. They've all come back to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and we have nine grandchildren. So we now have a family of 19 with whom we spend a time at least once a month with all of us. And the reality of that is that there's grace everywhere. I think the Enneagram is grace that you can grab. You know how you know that you live in God's grace, but you can't quite write that down. You can't quite tell somebody exactly what that looks like or exactly how it feels. You just know that grace is falling on all of us. And the Enneagram is also full of grace in that the wisdom that other people don't see what you see and they don't process it the way you do and they don't react to it the way you do essentially means that you at least have certainly the information that you would need to offer grace to other people. And so ultimately, I would say one of the things that I think keeps us from offering grace is a lack of Enneagram understanding because we just think we're all the same. And when you think you're everybody's the same as you, then they have behavior that you don't understand. And so your response is, why would anybody do that? Why would somebody behave? I would never do that. And I think that's because they're not my Enneagram number. 
and they don't see or respond to life like I do. I would say within our family, I think I'm, I'm astonished, honestly, by how good my children are to each other and by they are such good aunts and uncles. And all of these littles, all the cousins really get along with one another. And I think it's because we just have incorporated Enneagram language into our life so that we, if the children are having a problem with one another, we explain to them the difference in the two of them and they get it. Even the littles get it. So I think I would say that it has offered us an opportunity for more peace and an added opportunity maybe to live. You know, I'm old enough that Bob Dylan lyrics were important to me. And y'all may not even know who that is. Bob Dylan, one of his songs said, let's, let, let's keep each other forgiven and free. And I think the Enneagram helps people to do that. And so the final thing I would say, I guess, is that it has taught me what I look like when I'm healthy and what I look like when I'm not. And, you know, when people say, uh, what should I do now that I know the Enneagram or what type should I pick to be in relationship with or all those questions? My answer is always, you should just work to be the healthiest person you can be. That'll make you the best parent you can be. That'll make you the best partner you can be or the best spouse that you can be or the best leader that you can be. And, and I, I believe that that's true, that if you can be healthy, then we're all better as a result. And the Enneagram puts in words things that you immediately identify with and say, yep, that's me. And yet you wouldn't have been able to put that in words. It's like it names for you things that you know are true, but that you haven't said. And once you hear it, then you can say it. And that helps us explain ourselves to other people. Grace for ourselves and yeah. for other people. Yeah. It's just the extension of grace. Yes. And it's not reductive. You know, when people say, oh, I, the Enneagram puts you in a box or it's reductive. You know, first of all, I teach people the box they're already in. And secondly, it's not reductive. It's very expansive if it's done well. Now, trendy Enneagram is pretty reductive and fairly inaccurate as well. But good deep Enneagram work taught by people who've studied and who know what they're doing is for sure expansive. And that's what I experienced when I realized I was a four was that relief of like, I don't have to be a, like sort of like a slave to myself right? as a two. And now as a four, it was definitely that feeling of there's so much more, right? And so much relief of like, I don't have to keep trying to make people love me by doing things for them. And it's very interesting that you said that because one of my most regrettable moments as a parent is in the car with our youngest son, BJ, who's a four on the Enneagram. And we had an argument, me as a two and him as a four. And I said, you know, if, if, if you could try this, this, and this, then I think you would find that people will respond better to you and will like you more. And he said, I don't care if people like me. I said, of course you do. Everybody cares if people like them. He said, I don't. And most fours don't. So if you're trying to wear as a four that you need to make other people like you, that's a double burden from what I have to carry as a two. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's tricky. I'm glad you know that you're a four. (laughs) You begin the journey toward wholeness by discussing an existential state you define as liminality, being betwixt and between and identifying it as both an unsettling marker of our time, as well as a catalyst for creativity and growth. Can you tell us more about that realization, how it influenced the journey toward wholeness? Sure. I actually sold the book to my editor, IVP, before the pandemic, before COVID. So when COVID hit, I thought, oh man, I'm late. Like if only the book was out, it would be so helpful. And then I thought, oh no, no, I'm I'm on time. Mm-hmm. Because now everybody knows what liminal space is mm-hmm. because COVID forced liminality on literally everybody. So my desire to understand liminal space started a long time ago. As I said, Richard Rohr was our spiritual director and I looked back in my old journals and the first time he talked to us about liminal space was 22 years ago. And now a lot of people are talking about liminal space and they have been for about the last five or six years. And I think age had something to do with it. But the reason I got particularly interested is because I could never keep up with the tiny bit of technology that I understand. And Joe and I at 74 and 71 feel like we're doing pretty good. But if there's even the slightest change, then I'm, I'm out. And I got so frustrated with that reality, I thought, This is liminality. I'm not where I was. I know some things, but I'm not where I'm going and I don't know how to get there. And it's a very awkward place to be. And I am married to a United Methodist pastor and we are appointed by the bishop. That means that he can or she can move us at any time. And once you get to the place we are in ministry, like You know, we were, our last four appointments were nine years, 12 years, five years. And then Joe chose to move to First Methodist downtown Dallas. And I don't know how long we'll be there, but it will be his last move. And he was post-retirement. So it was his choice to move there. And that's liminal space when somebody else has the authority that you've given them to move you and your four children at any time that is best for the church you serve or the church that you're going to. And a liminal space, I think, is the third third of life. Joe and I are still both working full time at our ages, so we aren't able to stick with first half of life and second half of life. We've started talking about life in terms of thirds. And we're in the third third of life, but it's liminal space. You know, you don't know how long you're going to work. You don't know what limitations you're going to put on work because of wanting, in our case, just wanting time with one another or with our family. And so things don't have the permanence that they have when you're younger. So that was a a big thing for us. And finally, I was particularly interested in some work having to do with climate change because I have nine grandchildren. And I'm not very good at all that. Like I'm not good at green and I'm not very good at it. I I do the minimum, I'm sure, for people who are really good at it. And yet it matters a lot to me that they inherit a world that's filled with beauty and cleanliness and clean air to breathe and all of that. And I 
I just think we're in a, a weird space where maybe the problems are, I don't mean to sound cavalier about this, but culturally we move so fast. I think the problems are bigger than, in quotes, we have time for, close quote. And that's kind of problematic for me. So those are all the big ways that liminality got my interest again. When I was reading that part there at the beginning, I just thought, that's it. That is, that is the way to wrap my head around what the pandemic has been. Yeah. But, but like you're saying, you've been living in liminal space for your whole life. And, and, and all of us probably are in some way or another, right? And Sure. Yeah, you know, when I first learned about it, Father Rohr said to us, you know, it's the most teachable space. And then he went on to say, it is perhaps the only teachable space. And he sent us back to scripture, of course. And God is always trying to move people into liminality. And I think it's so that we can learn. So my concern following all of the loss, of course, and the loss of life and the loss of quality of life and all the things that we've lost because of the pandemic. My concern is, did we learn anything? And I'm afraid the answer is not much. This talk about liminal times leads us into the next question. And that is, you discuss living in liminal times within the context of the pandemic. We don't like it when the world around us, this is your quote, seems out of control. But let's face it, control is an illusion. It is my favorite illusion, but that doesn't make it real. And then a few sentences later, you write every moment, even dare I say, a liminal moment is full of potential if we have the desire and courage to walk towards it. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that. There's this potential for growth in that and hopefully for us to learn. How can we do that? How can we step into that? Yeah. Years ago, Joe preached a sermon and my mother happened to be in town. She was still alive then. And in that sermon, he said, faith and control cannot peacefully coexist. And ugh, that made me feel challenged a little bit more than I wanted to be, maybe. And it made me kind of want to argue <laughs> a little bit. You know, Joe went to seminary at 14, and he was in seminary for 13 years, preparing to be a Roman Catholic priest with the Vincentian Fathers. And he has had a spiritual director. He's 74, and he's had a spiritual director since he was 14. Yeah, so it's kind of hard to argue with him about spiritual practice and spiritual ideas and spiritual thoughts. I don't win often. And so for a long time, I, I had it, you know, on, on the refrigerator, faith and control cannot peacefully coexist. And I would take it down and put it in the drawer because I couldn't stand to look at it anymore. And then I'd get all controlling and I'd pull it out and hang it back on the refrigerator. And then somewhere along the way, I stopped that. And when my mother died, there weren't very many things in her Bible that were removable, but there was a little piece of paper in her Bible that said faith and control cannot peacefully coexist. And it was in her handwriting. So of course now it's laminated and it's hanging in my office. And I, I think control is a favorite illusion for all of us because we forget that we really are not in control. And 
I kind of like the moments when I think I am, you know, I feel all powerful and stuff. And I feel like things are going to work out just like I want them to. And I think my plan's really a good one. And I think we have to have a plan. I think we have to kind of be organized about life. And I think faith means that if you find yourself betwixt in between, when you're not where you were and not where you're going, then that's the moment when you can say, oh, oh yeah, faith and control cannot peacefully coexist. That means, though, if, they, if we try to put the two together, then we lack peace. And ultimately, I would rather have peace than live in the illusion that I'm in control. I didn't put that quote in the book from Joe because I didn't want to have to hear it all the time. I live with it enough. So I decided just to not put that in. I hear that. Yeah. Do I want that in my book? Nah, no. This book's hard enough. People don't need to grapple with that. It is so interesting, though, how when we feel like we want to embrace control so that we can have peace, but it's it's really the opposite. It's realizing that we don't have control is where we start to step into peace. That's exactly it. And, and that's, that's just such an interesting concept. Yeah. And it's so hard. It's really, really hard. You know, I've, I've always said, if you think you're in control, take a toddler who hasn't had a nap to the grocery store. Yes. <laughs> True. <laughs> When Joey, our oldest, was maybe, I don't know, three, she talked to everybody, like I do. And we were in the checkout line. And there was a woman in front of us who really had obviously had a really bad day. You know, bad hair, not the best combination of clothes, lipstick kind of outside the lip line. Like, it was a hard morning for her. And I literally thought, oh, Joey. And the woman turned around and said hello to Joey. And she said, hi. And there was a pause. And Joey said, you look nice today. And I thought, there is a God and God is in God's heaven and all the world is great. And the woman said, thank you so much. And Joey said, you're welcome. I bet nobody ever says that to you. To which I responded poorly and said, It's my neighbor's little girl. (laughs) We're not putting that one. No, 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 no. No, I I don't know what to do with that. And she's an eight on the Enneagram. She's been that honest since. She -hmm. still just tells you like it is, you know. I didn't know the Enneagram then. I don't know if it would have mattered, but anyway. (laughs) So I think if you you think you're in control, then think about stories like that Mm -hmm. that make up your good and wonderful life. And it's just pretty easy to figure out that you're not. Yes. I have um, a friend whose husband died a number of years ago and I don't know, a year later or something, she started dating someone and we're, you know, we live in community together and we're in, in the dinner line and Phoenix asked how she was and told her about this man and, and Phoenix said, Oh, so it's kind of like with hamsters. If one dies, you get another one. <laughs> And thankfully, my friend knows and loves Phoenix so much. Sure. She thought it was hilarious and then yeah. repeated it to everybody um, that she saw. So, yes, I am yeah. so aware. My daughter's on the autism spectrum. Yeah. And so you never know what's going to happen with her. You never know what she's going to say. Isn't it lovely, though, that it's just a little bit closer to the truth than the rest of us? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You know, I, I do find that children that are on the spectrum often say something that you need to hear. Mm-hmm. It's kind of lovely. Thanks for joining us today. The Mudroom Podcast is a production of the Mudroom Blog. It's executive produced by Tammy Perlmutter. It's produced, written, and edited by Nicole Wu. A very special thanks to recording artist Krista Wells for our theme song, More Than I Am. Graphic design by Amanda Tingle-Taylor. For more on the Mudroom, a place for stories emerging in the midst of the mess, visit mudroomblog.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Stay tuned for episode three, our continuing conversation with Suzanne Stabile, where we'll unearth more Enneagram wisdom. See you soon. Sisters and brothers are islands are great to visit, but I have found we are meant to live a life. I thank the one who sent you, cause he knows how much you've meant to me.